some visiting faces here amongst us, as well as lots of uh, regular church family. And one of my pray before we uh, dive into this passage. Father God, we thank you for the love of Jesus that we've just sung about. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We pray now as we hear these words about what it will look like to follow the Lord Jesus and how that may not always be easy, that you would remind us of his wonderful love and help us to know following him is so worth it because his love is so wonderful. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, if you were a Redeemer regular, we picked up several people in our church family have been moving or buying and selling houses at the moment. Um, one of the key steps, I haven't done this yet myself, one of the key steps I've picked up is that you have a survey done. I think that's normal. Give me a nod. Yeah, I think that's a normal thing. Um, I guess what you're probably not expecting to happen when, you, when your survey is done is uh, the surveyor to kind of... Uh, arrive at the house and the homeowner to be there, come on in, let me tell you everything that is wrong with this house. Just, just imagine it. Okay, they welcome you at the door and they say, oh, right, first thing you've got to know, there is a leak in the bathroom. But you wouldn't pick that up if I didn't tell you, because it only happens after three people have had a shower. Uh, also, the back left hole is kind of intermittent. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'll just tell you, because you might not pick that up. Um, the boiler sounds fine. We've been told it might be replacing in, in two years. If you even look behind this mirror on this wall, which you, you know, why would you do that? You'll see that there's a big hole there. If you go outside in, in the garden and uh, have a look behind the shrubs, you'll see it's a pretty serious crack that might affect the foundations of the house. You probably wouldn't see it, but we thought we might as well bring it up. You could go on, couldn't you? Imagine. The surveyor would probably be pretty, pretty happy. You'd probably be pretty happy if you were looking uh, to buy that house. And you'd hope most sellers would be um, pretty open about those sorts of things, wouldn't you? The, the serious things, at least. Um, but you wouldn't either be expecting someone to tell you a list of absolutely everything uh, that could possibly uh, go wrong. And I wonder if we were to do a survey um, of what the Christian life uh, would look like. Of what, given all that Jesus has told us in, in the last few chapters, we would see a list full of wonderful blessings, wouldn't we? Uh, we have seen in chapter 13 what it is to be loved by Jesus to the full, uh, to be cleansed by him and know his forgiveness. Uh, we've seen in chapter 14 about what it is that he goes away to prepare a place for us in the Father's house. We've seen that he has promised to give us his spirit, that we might know his love and that we in return might be able to love him. A list full of blessings in the Christian life. But as we get to this passage today, we see that Jesus isn't sugarcoating it either. He says, well let me tell you, as well as the huge blessings that you will enjoy, let me first tell you what some of the hardest things will be when you follow me. A bit like showing us around that house. And the key thing he wants us to know um, in this passage today is that following Jesus will be a life with opposition. 
But why is it that he paints such a, a vivid picture here? Um, it's hardly a passage we might kind of pick to read and, and teach on at, at something like an event that the students have, have just had. Well, a couple of verses uh, in chapter 16, um, at the end of our reading, give us a, a clue as to why he's telling them. Have a look down, 16 verse 1. All this I have told you, why? So that you will not fall away. And then verse 4, I have told you this, why? So that when their time comes, that is when it looks like everything is against you, you will remember that I warned you about them. He's telling them this, he's giving them uh, what some of the hardest things about following Jesus will be, because forewarned is forearmed. He's preparing them in order to protect them. He warns the disciples now that it's going to be hard so that they can stand firm then when it is. And although that will look different in some ways for us today, 2,000 years later, the pattern is still true for all who follow the Lord Jesus. He wants us to be forewarned so that we can be forearmed. So when we look through these verses now, we're just going to pick out three responses to opposition that Jesus is encouraging us towards this morning. The first one is to expect opposition. Expect opposition. Have a look down at verse 18 and 19. He says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus tells the disciples that they will be hated by the world. I wonder if we find those words a little bit surprising. So far in our series, we've, we've had so much about the love of Jesus, haven't we? Chapter 13 is all about the love Jesus has for his Followers, chapter 14 tells us about the gift of the Spirit so we know the love of God and we can show the love of God. Chapter 15 last week, we're told to abide in Jesus and his love. Even the reading last week ended with these words, verse 17, this is my command, love each other. So many rich blessings for being a Christian. And then we get verse 18, if the world hates you, it was a surprising change of tone given what we've heard so far from Jesus over the last few weeks. But it's also surprising given our personal experience maybe as well. We might know some people who really seem to hate anybody who follows Jesus. But for most people we know, maybe that feels a little bit strong. We wouldn't say people hate us, they might think we're a bit old, they might not disagree with us. But we would say, well typically it doesn't feel like I'm hated. Well, what does Jesus mean then when he says the world will hate you? Well, I think all the answer lies in that word, the world. John, if you see in those two verses, he repeats this word six times. And in this chapter, John has kind of set up two categories for us. Uh, we've got the church, 
which is represented in what we had last week, those who are in the vine, those who are in Jesus. And this week we've got the world. Now these two groups of people, they're not just people with different points of view on things, like you might have a different point of view on climate change or, or even the vaccine. But what divides these people is far much more profound. The question isn't just whether they think Jesus is a nice guy or not, but whether he is God, whether he is who he says he is. We tell these two groups of people apart by their relationship to Jesus. The church submits to Jesus as Lord and lives in allegiance to him. They are in the vine. The world, the world refuses Jesus' lordship. Throughout John, the world refers to those who will not let God be God, those who are in opposition to God. And every human being belongs either to the world or to the church. When Jesus says the world will hate you to his disciples, he doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to face daily, unending, battering hostility. It's true that, that they might and some might. But rather, I think there's this broader pattern of confrontation between Jesus and the church and the world. And if we are in the church, then no one can be unaffected by that at some level. The deepest allegiances of humanity, whether they are towards Jesus or away from Jesus, when push comes to shove, they will be expressed in the deepest of hostilities at times. He's kind of mapping out the terrain for us in a particular way for them and in a pattern that is true throughout history, that we should expect opposition. But what will this opposition look like? Um, was it a few clues in here for the first disciples? Maybe you saw 16 verse 2, this reference to being thrown out of the synagogues for, for a Jew. This would be taking all of their social standing away. Um, it might look, verse 2 talks about um, them being killed. It might be a particular act of violence. Verse 2 uh, even talks about religious reasons that uh, they may think they are doing a service to God. It might be done in a way that seems, seems to have a good reason from their perspective at least. Well, I guess we see all these kind of reasons echoing throughout church history. Social ostracizing, violence, religious motives as well. If you head up the A34 to, to Oxford, uh, you can see somewhere called uh, the Martyr's Cross. We've got a, a picture on, on here. And uh, it's just in the middle of a, of a road. And it's the spot where two archbishops, Ridley and Latimer, and Archbishop Cranmer a year later, were, were burnt for their faith. Um, there is a, a kind of wood cutting that was, that was made of it. Let me pop that up. Um, this, was, this was done to kind of tell people the story of, of what was happening. And the account goes that whilst the flames were rising, I wonder if you can see uh, just up there what was happening. A sermon was being preached. Seems a, a deep irony, doesn't it, that two uh, believers are being burned at the stake, uh, but they are being burned by those who believe they are doing God's service. This opposition may look 
social, it may be violent, it may seem uh, religious. Uh, but it's not entirely a thing of the past either. We might think, oh, this was 500 years ago. This July, uh, in London, just a few months ago, there was a 39-year-old woman uh, called Hafuntash from Turkey who was stabbed at Speaker's Corner after speaking the gospel. She was rushed to hospital and thankfully um, she survived. That feels a lot close to home, doesn't it? Now, this might sound quite extreme, um, I'm not going to scare anybody, but, but I'm saying this to follow Jesus' example, that he is, he is trying to share with his disciples, this is what could happen, this is what the hardest parts of being a Christian could lead you to. I guess, what is the opposition that we're more likely to face in our day-to-day, where as individuals we might face a bit of pushback at work for holding certain opinions, we, we may even lose a job. We might have strained relationships with friends or, or, or family or neighbours. We might not expect to be, to be burdened. But what about as a church? Well, perhaps we might be accused of hate speech for holding certain Christian convictions. We might be turned out of our office or not able to meet in the school. All these things are possibilities. We pray that they would not happen, but Jesus tells us to expect opposition. And Jesus knows the temptation for the disciples in this moment of opposition is to feel everything is going wrong. Surely Jesus didn't mean us to face this, did he? And maybe we could easily feel the same. But 16 verse 4 tells us that he gave these words uh, for them to cling onto. He says, I have told you this so that when the time comes you will remember that I warned you. These are hard words, but they're also deeply assuring, aren't they? They show that Jesus cares for them enough to tell them the hard things. He forewarns them in order to forearm them. When you face hostility from the world, he says, no, it's not because everything has gone wrong. In fact, it's very likely that opposition from the world is a sign that you are doing everything right and that you are following Jesus himself. Now it's worth also just adding that in this area, we are in a relatively safe and secure country, aren't we? We have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters in countries where it is so much more brutal the opposition to being a, a believer. Uh, I volunteer with uh, a charity called Open Doors. Some of you might, might know they um, support persecuted Christians around the world and seek to kind of inform people about the different situations around the globe. Um, just did this for a couple of months of my year abroad and it was, it was in the French office of Open Doors and they had some interviews uh, that were in English that had been done in various African countries, I think. And uh, they wanted me to listen to them and transcribe them because they couldn't, some of the accents were quite strong, they couldn't quite work out what people were saying. Oh, you're a native speaker, can you have a listen to these, um, these interviews? And they were interviewing people uh, about about their experiences of what happened to them 
um, in uh, different elements of persecution. And I was really happy to, to do the job, um, but nothing quite prepared me for how, how horrifying it would be to uh, listen to those people recounting uh, the acts of violence and the distress that was in their voices, but also the bravery that they showed. Um, it was, I can't really remember many of the details, but I just remember being struck by this kind of raw emotion in their voices and, and some of the interviews, there was wailing going on in the background because of what had happened. But also the sense of trusting in the Lord Jesus, an instinct to cast themselves upon him. And I wonder, because of their, because of what, what their culture was, because they knew that believing in Jesus would cost them something just in the very act of becoming a Christian, um, it had prepared them for it in a way that maybe it is harder for us to be prepared for. So Jesus says he expects opposition. But this idea of facing hatred and hostility, um, I guess it could lead us, I wonder how we're kind of feeling about our response towards it, it could lead us in two directions, I think. And firstly, we might just take hostility so personally that it, it just completely overwhelms you wears us down uh, to the ground. Um, but secondly, we could also be overwhelmed by fear that we just withdraw completely and never want to speak of Jesus to anyone. Um, we're going to have a look at those two things in our next two points. So let's, let's look at the first one of those. Um, understanding opposition. Uh, Jesus, he knows that the disciples, they'll be tempted to take the world's hostility very personally. You know, that could be absolutely crushing. And so he's clear all the way throughout this passage, what is the reason behind it? He wants them to understand why. And he highlights two things. Firstly, that they will be hated because they're associated with Jesus. They'll be hated because they're associated with Jesus. At verse 18 to 19, um, Jesus describes how all of those who follow him belong to Jesus and not to the world. And in verse 20 to 21, he shows that belonging to Jesus means, well, it means being treated in the way Jesus is treated. Let me read from verse 20. Remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. Not just uh, because of who they are, but because of Jesus' name. Well, if you were to move abroad, uh, some of you have moved here um, from other countries, I know if you were to move abroad and live there long enough, you would become a citizen of, of uh, that new country. You might get a new passport, end up living under a, a kind of new authority with new allegiances. Um, and then if at that point the country that you are now living in uh, goes into war with another country, there's a sense in which that country's enemies have now become your enemies because you belong to that country. Um, there's this moment in uh, one of my favourite series is Band of Brothers in World War II, which follows these American paratroopers and um, they encounter some German 
prisoners of war. And one of the Americans gets talking to the German, and, and he's got an American accent, and he's very surprised. Well, where, how, where, where did he come from? And it turns out that this German soldier had grown up just down the road from him in America. But because his family were German, they had moved back over. That was where their allegiance was. And so these two people had uh, grown up just down the road from each other, uh, got chatting, but their allegiances were in different places. They were enemies. Now, allegiance to Jesus is much more profound than belonging uh, to a country, uh, but in a similar way, uh, you cannot have a split allegiance. You, you can't be on Christ's side and also on the world's side. It would be kind of like trying to play football for two teams at, at once. No, Jesus is telling his followers, when you face hostility, it isn't first and foremost you that they hate. It is me. It is because you belong to me. They will be hated because they are associated with Jesus. That helps us to begin understanding the position. But secondly, they will be hated because those who oppose Jesus don't know the Father who sent Jesus. Hatred of Jesus will lead his followers to be hated. But why? Well, because they don't know who Jesus really is. They don't know who sent him. And we see this in a, in a couple of verses. Um, the end of verse 21. They will treat you this way. Why? For they do not know the one who sent me. Or 16 verse 3. They will do such things. Why? Because they have not known the Father or me. Jesus, he came to make the Father known. Jesus, he tells us in verse 22 that he's spoken to them, they've heard God's works. Or in verse 24, he has done among them works no one else did. In Jesus, they've seen God's works. He was sent to make the Father known, and yet they hate him. Why? Is it just simple ignorance? Well, John says, they do not know him because of their sin. They do not want to submit to him. There's a couple of verses here which seem a bit confusing on the first readings. Let me just read them through again. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. Now, just to be clear, uh, we might read these verses at the first glance and think, oh, it sounds like Jesus is saying they, they've done nothing wrong, they're not guilty of sin. But we know the Bible says that all of humanity who have rebelled against God way before Jesus walked the earth are guilty. I think John's referring to something very specific that they are guilty of. Did you see he talks about now they have no excuse for him? Something about the timing of what is happening now. What is so particular about this sin, about this time? Well, in a sense, it is revealing the sin behind all sins. It is about the rejection of Jesus, the rejection of God himself. He was sent by God to reach out to them in a way unlike any other revelation of God. If he was 
speaking and or even whispering before, it now as Jesus has come to them and stands before them, it is as if God is not only using a megaphone, but standing in the room looking them in the eyes. And yet they still choose to reject him. They still hate him. They still do not know him. He says they are without excuse. So they oppose, not just because they hate Jesus, but because they do not know who he is. But how will these words help us in the face of opposition? I guess they help us acknowledge the why, that what is going on under the bonnet. When the world hates you, when you face hostility, firstly, it is not personal, it is that the world hates Jesus and you belong to him. And that is helpful, isn't it? Even if, when we think about it, their hatred of Jesus is far more tragic and far more serious than their hatred of us. But also because they do not know Jesus or the Father. If they did, of course they wouldn't hate you. Of course they wouldn't hate him. And that's helpful too, because in one sense, isn't that the story of all of us? We have all belonged to the world, and we only now belong to Jesus because he has graciously chosen us out of the world, as we see in verse 19. That doesn't make their, their hatred free of any guilt, but it does explain it, it does help us understand. So if we're going to avoid being overwhelmed by taking hostility personally, then we must understand your position. The woman I referred to earlier, Hathun Tash, who was stabbed in London a few months ago, and she was interviewed, and her words expressed that she too understood why there had been opposition. Uh, that it wasn't so much about her per se, but that it was about Jesus. And she said these words, it's not about the blood on my hands. She's not so bothered about the injury done to her. It is unacceptable that you are running away from Jesus Christ. What pained her more wasn't the blood that was shed by them on her hands and on her face. What bothered her most was that they would not accept the blood of Christ, the offer of forgiveness that he held out to them. Well, expect opposition, so don't be surprised by it. Understand opposition will help us to not be overwhelmed by it. But on the other hand, we may be tempted, might we, to withdraw completely, to never show any allegiance to Jesus or speak of him at all, because it just feels too scary or too much. And to that, Jesus says, thirdly, we must also endure opposition. My last point. Jesus is clear here, opposition is not something that we withdraw from, but it is something to withstand. Opposition is going to continue, even though Jesus has gone to be with the Father, because even though he is no longer physically with us, we continue testifying to him, to his works, and to what he has done. Have a look at verse 26 and 27. When the advocate, that's talking about the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. The Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must 
testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus says, opposition is not a reason to give up on the mission of testifying about Jesus. Jesus is in the business of calling people out of the world and to himself and into his family. So we must keep speaking. Who is going to need calling out of the world into the church but those who are already opposed to him? Well, the sending of the Spirit, we might think, could be a reason to give up speaking about Jesus. Oh, the, the, the Spirit's here, he can, he can do it all. But, but have a look at verse 27. No, you also must testify. First and foremost, he's talking to the disciples there. But also, in a secondary way, to, to us, we have a role to play as well. The Spirit's testimony and the Apostles' testimony, they go hand in hand. The Spirit, yes, only He can bring new life. But Scripture tells us that faith comes through hearing. And so followers of Jesus are to speak so that people can hear the good news. In one sense, those disciples, their testimony was unique because they had been with Jesus from the very beginning and they could speak of him in that way. But in some ways, ours is unique too. There are people that we have access to that they never had. We have the gift of uh, the Spirit who has helped inspire the whole Bible and Scripture. We must endure opposition. But enduring can feel scary, it can feel just plain hard and tough at times. How are we to endure? Well, there's lots of little encouragements dropped along the way through this passage. We're not alone. We've got the Spirit's help. We know that um, from the rest of Scripture that it, there will be some fruit. Some will turn to Jesus and be saved. Uh, but let me just focus on two encouragements to, to close. Two ways Jesus helps us to endure. Firstly, we can endure and be encouraged because God is not surprised. We know this because Jesus is telling them it's going to happen, he's warning them, um, but it goes deeper than that. I wonder if you spotted in verse 25. This is to fulfil what is written in their law. And then he quotes a psalm. They hated me without reason. John points to this trend of, of opposition as a fulfilment of something written hundreds of years ago. Opposition is not unexpected. And that means God's plan can't be thwarted by it. We see it's the pattern for Jesus, don't we? God used the greatest opposition as they killed him on the cross to bring about the greatest act of salvation. It's the pattern in the early church. As we read through the book of Acts, we see again and again persecution happens, but it scatters God's people to places that have never heard the gospel before and where countless people turn to trust in him. And as we see the pattern in Jesus in early church, we see it throughout church history and today. So many countries that face the most severe persecution are countries which then see huge growth in the church. Take China, for example. 70 years ago, 0.1% of the population were believers. Now it is 3%. That has an increase in tens of millions of 
people is astounding. In the face of such persecution, the church has mushrooms. And God is not surprised by it. He can even use it. Don't be surprised. But secondly, remember, we belong to Jesus. Jesus begins this section by reminding them of who they belong to and how they belong to him. If we trust in Jesus, we belong to Jesus. Not because of our bravery, not because of our goodness or our courage even, but because he has chosen us out of the world. He has set his love upon us and brought us into relationship with him. He has moved us to repentance and faith. And in 16 verse 1, I wonder if you spotted, Jesus says the most serious thing that can happen in the face of opposition, it's not death, but it is falling away from him. Why? Well, because belonging to him is what we're made for. Belonging to him is what we are saved for. And belonging to him forever is worth losing our very lives. Jesus says, it's better to die belonging to me than to live and to fall away. Because in God's economy, every death leads to a resurrection. Those who follow Jesus will follow his pattern of life. There will be opposition, like Jesus faced opposition. There will eventually be death, whether that is persecution or natural, normal, mortal, weakening of our bodily frames. But like Jesus, there will also be a resurrection. When Jesus chooses someone out of the world, a change happens on a cosmic scale. He gives us eternal life, something that can never be snatched away. And eternity, that, that beautiful hope, it doesn't make enduring any less hard in the day by day, but it does make it possible, Jesus says, because we know God is faithful. And in Jesus, we have the perfect model of following these encouragements. He is one who accepted opposition. He knew it was coming. He is one who understood opposition. But he also endured it. Not just for his own glory, but also for our sake, that we might be saved. So Jesus wants to prepare his disciples and prepare us for what following him uh, looks like a life full of blessings but also a life with significant hardships uh, we've been reading these words from thousands of years ago but they still ring true today but one man who would have read them and, and heard them maybe even from john's own mouth was a guy called polycarp um, he lived in uh, the second century uh, he was bishop of somewhere called smyrna uh, he was a disciple of John. Uh, his story follows this pattern too. He expected opposition, he understood it, and he endured it. And in his old age, 86, he was sentenced to death for following uh, Jesus. And they tried to get him to recant his faith. But he knew this wasn't, this wasn't a surprise to God. He knew that he belonged to Jesus. And the story goes that as they tried to get him to recant and to say that Jesus was not who he said he was, he gave them these words. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, but nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my King who saved me? All the precious words.
we pray that with the Spirit's help we would be able to follow his example. Thank you. 